Please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. On Good Friday, Ryan preached on the crucifixion from John chapter 19. On Easter Sunday, preached from about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his various appearances from John chapter 20. And today we're looking at John chapter 21, the epilogue to John's gospel. And there are plenty of Easter eggs left in the gospel of John. Here in this very last scene, Jesus gives his roadmap for his continuing work in the world through a hard and wonderful conversation in part with a strong yet struggling apostle. We'll read the whole chapter together. John writes, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, 
If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Well, sometimes a story ends and you're satisfied. All of the loose ends are tied up. All of the themes resolved. And sometimes a story ends and you're not satisfied. There's more to come and you're mad about it. Some TV shows can be like this. They end with a cliffhanger and you, like a drug, you have to watch the next week and then the next. And if you have Netflix, you're in huge trouble. Huge trouble. Well, when the Gospel of John ends, we could not be more satisfied. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And if you can think of a more satisfying ending than that, then you are probably not a Christian. It is a satisfying ending indeed, and God designed. Now in chapter 1, Jesus and his disciples sit around a glowing campfire to watch the sun come up and share an amazing breakfast. You can just see the credits rolling right on top of this scene, can't you? And yet this last chapter of John's gospel is like the first chapter in the story of the rest of history. And that's exactly what it is. We should remember the original audience for this book. They would have been first century Christians who were living in the shadow of these days under the leadership of the apostles. The events in this book would be current enough that eyewitnesses would still be alive. John's gospel gives meaning to their circumstances and their struggles as the church in the first century. And this last chapter is the link between Jesus' earthly ministry and the ministry that he is conducting by his spirit, whom he sent and promised, through his apostles. He writes to strengthen the credibility of the apostles Christ appointed, and he writes to add definition and strength to our understanding of the work that he appointed them to do and what it is that we are about as the church. For us, what we find in chapter 21 is Jesus Christ making plans for us. We're not just watching a movie with a sequel on the way. We are the sequel, and this is our backstory. Jesus tells us who we are to him and what it is that we are to do as those who belong to him. So our sermon will unfold in two parts this morning following the two halves of the chapter. First, we'll see an unforgettable meal and then an unstoppable mission. And they're related, really. This is an unforgettable meal, which is fuel for an unstoppable mission. Jesus' cross work is finished, but Jesus' first church work continues even now. Even now. So first part, an unforgettable meal. Jesus feeds his apostles. An unforgettable meal, Jesus feeds his apostles. The first half of the chapter is focused on Jesus' breakfast with his apostles. That this was an unforgettable meal is proven in part by the fact that it made it in the Bible. This memory loomed large in the memory of the disciples who were there. They told and retold the story. And of all that was left out of the book of John, this was selected. It was that important. It was that meaningful. It was that significant. And it's a nostalgic meal. 
There are a number of reasons why it's unforgettable. First of all, it's nostalgic, verses 1 through 9. It's nostalgic because of where they are. They're back home and on the water. The scene opens up kind of like the closing scene in the last movie of The Lord of the Rings with Frodo and Sam back at the Shire. Right, only minutes before in the movie, the volcano, uh, you know, the, the whole eye thing. Uh, they've, they've been somewhere together. And now they're back at the Shire and the old music is playing. There's a heavy feeling about it, but there's a happy feeling about it. And John writes in verse 1, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Well, after what? Where had they been? Well, after... There were three years with Jesus as his disciples, sitting with him, eating with him, spending each day with him, watching him, learning from him. After Jesus was crucified, no harder or more devastating a day in the history, perhaps especially for these guys, given what was going on in their hearts as those who were not necessarily standing with him, some abandoning him. Hardest day in the history of the world and they witnessed it firsthand. And after this, he was taken down off the cross and put in a tomb. And after this, he was raised from the dead, proving everything that he said about himself was true and proving the meaning of his death as a substitute suffering sacrifice for sinners. And flipping every measure of horror and disappointment in his disciples' hearts into heavenly joy. And after this, he appeared to Mary, his disciples, and then eight days later to Thomas. And after this, John writes in 21.1, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. It's about 80 miles north of Jerusalem where the crucifixion and first appearances had happened, which is a long road and enough road for a long conversation and a lot of dreaming and a lot of reflecting and a lot of debriefing on the years and the events that had lie behind them. And now, after all that they had been through, the disciples are back home. And Peter, Captain Initiative, says to his friends in verse 3, I am going fishing. And their response is an indication that these guys are getting along just fine. They said to him, we will go with you. Jesus is raised from the dead, but these guys still need to eat fish. Remember, they were called, some of them as fishermen, to drop their nets And follow Jesus in fishing for men. Here they are fishing again, which is just fine. They need to eat. You can imagine the scene. The wind, the night sky, the lapping waves, the familiar fishing gear, the smell of the boat. These are old sights and old sounds and they are old smells to these men. Everything is the same and yet these men are not the same. It's nostalgic because of where they are, back home and on the water fishing. It's also nostalgic because of what happens to them. In the first place, verse 3 says, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Jesus is raised from the dead and they're catching no fish. They've been here before and on this lake and after a long night with nothing to show for it, you might remember. Should be something of a hint as to what's coming. And now there's a guy on the shore talking to them, and he says, Children, have you caught any fish? They answer him, No. And he said, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the the quantity of fish. One perceptive disciple gets it. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It's the Lord. 
When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He may or may not have been naked, and threw himself into the sea. Peter is always moving. And it says in verse 8, The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. I always, I always find these curious. You wonder, mm, who made it to the shore first? Right, we were only a hundred yards off. We stayed in the boat. Uh, we'll find out later. John wrote this. Peter shows up wet, uh, but, but eager to see his Lord. He could not resist himself. Could not resist himself. In verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus had been preparing for them. This is the context for the meal with the risen Jesus. And Jesus has planned it this way. He could have met them on their journey back to Galilee, 80 miles, probably plenty of opportunity for meals, probably plenty of needed meals on that trek, but instead he orchestrated this meal so that it would come at the end of this familiar night of toil. It's the perfect way for John to begin the end of his book. He served them in his life. Jesus served them in his death. And now having risen from the dead, he serves them still. Breakfast, the nostalgic meal. This meal is also miraculous. It's also miraculous, duh, right? Verse 10 through 11. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Notice the description of this catch. They not only catch fish when they had caught none. These are, these are big fish, huge fish. All of them big. And the net was full. They even remembered the number of fish, 153. And would you know that 153 is a triangular number of 17, which is the sum of both 10 plus 7 and 12 plus 5, all four of which are significant numbers in the gospel. No, you didn't know that. And neither did the disciples, and neither did John when he was writing. I promise you Jesus knew that and that he also did not care. So don't get, don't get caught up with uh, fishy interpretations of numbers like this. This is not a, an apocalyptic uh, situation, and even if it was, we'd do something different with the number. Why 153? The significance of the number. I reckon that's how many fish they done caught. <laughs> and why is it written down? Because it's apparently a lot of fish. Remember, they would have expected the net to be torn. So they get, it's, no, it's no use, it's no use uh, performing a miracle and granting a giant catch if the net breaks and you lose them all. So Jesus, the total package miracle, secures the net so they can get it ashore. And uh, 153, they remembered it. So another cell phone sales day story. How about that? So there was a, an ice storm in Louisville maybe six years ago. Didn't have to open the store, decided to open the store and see what happened. Maybe, the, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe people will come in and buy something, right? You go to work to, to make money. So I thought, I'm going to go to work. Me and a buddy opened up this store off Dixie Highway in Louisville, Kentucky. And it absolutely, the door was uh, open the whole time, basically with people coming in and out. Buying what? It was an ice storm. About an inch of ice around every branch of tree and power lines, and no one had power. How do you charge your phone? Your car. Uh, we sold, I remembered it probably until a year ago. I've forgotten the number. We sold dozens and dozens and dozens of car chargers. 
And with the way the commission was structured, accessories were where it's at, because you didn't necessarily make it on the main thing. Uh, contracts, you, you, you certainly made it on accessories. Sorry, folks. And, uh, you know, I hate buying them, too. Um, I remember I remembered the exact number. It was 600 and something dollars in commission on cell phone car chargers. Why? Why would I remember the number that long? Because it was a, an amazing day and an unusual situation and a fun story to tell. The day of the ice storm, who'd have thought? 153 fish. It was a memorable day. They couldn't get the number out of their mind. They stuck it in the scripture. This meal is nostalgic, it's miraculous, and it's surreal. It's also surreal, verse 12 and 13. Another word for surreal is dreamlike, or we could say weird, or it's just strange. Did you notice that Jesus had to invite them to eat? We get the impression they didn't fly off the boat to the campfire. Verse 12, he said to them, come and have breakfast. Uh, and while he, they sit and eat, we get the impression that the disciples didn't even really talk. Verse 12 and 13, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? I mean, you spent three years with the guy, and you're thinking, should we ask him who he is? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. He wasn't the same. But who else could he possibly be? They knew it was him but wanted to ask still. Remember, Jesus had risen. He's appearing and disappearing now. He could walk through walls with his body. He could eat fish. And here he was sitting on the beach cooking breakfast for their empty stomachs. How wonderful his care. And how strange an experience. We should stop right here to linger for a moment on what a scene, a scene like this means. You ever wondered where Jesus is in your hard nights with an empty net? Your business is falling apart. Your house is falling apart. A relationship is falling apart. Your body is falling apart. You may not see Jesus. He sees you perfectly. He could come down and cook you breakfast and end it. He has his reasons. This was real. You ever thought that because of your vocation or your education or your age or family history or your personal background, things that you've done, that Jesus is uninterested in you and your life and that you are unemployable by him? There were more powerful, better educated, and more influential people in the world uh, on this particular morning than these men on the sea who were catching their own fish. There are probably more powerful, educated, and influential people around the corner. And there are more powerful and influential people uh, in this city and in this town and in this block than are in this room. And Jesus cares about every one of us, his sheep. He exalts the humble. Have you ever wondered what will happen? What, uh, sorry, what heaven will be like? Mm, this is kind of a picture of it. You think about it. Night turns to day, an empty net is filled. Jesus fills their stomachs. John says, it's the Lord. Peter jumps off the boat. He's got something in the back of his mind, by the way, that might restrict him from being fully excited to see Jesus, as we'll find out. But he flings himself with the Lord, unable to restrain himself. The disciples spent three years with him, and now they are speechless in his presence and all of this is only a hint at the awe that we'll know when we see him face to face in all of his brilliant glory. Remember the transfiguration. This is nothing. Heaven will be way weird, and that's a good thing. We're blown away. Not only by his greatness, but by his personal and specific love for each of his people. These men are eating again with Jesus, and they are amazed that they are with him again. It's surreal. 
as are all of his miracles. And it's also pivotal. Verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. That is, this is his third and final appearance in this book. If the meal shared in the upper room was the last supper, this meal shared on the beach is the last breakfast. Almost made it to be the title of the sermon, the last breakfast. And so we would expect Jesus isn't here just to feed them, though he is here to feed them in cares about their need. He's here to teach them something. This is a sign. John 20, just before this story, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life. So here's another sign, one last sign. And signs don't come without explanations. They don't stand on their own. They serve particular purposes, a spiritual point. It's here to teach them. Sometimes in the Bible, God teaches us through clouds and thunder and a mountain. But in Jesus coming down, he gets right in front of us. My daughter Shay uh, is three and a half. Mm, if we listen carefully, we might hear a three-word sentence. So a little behind in talking. I got buddies of one-year-olds talking. Like, what is going on with Shay? So I've had some people getting to know her a little bit who know how uh, speech works. They say, ah, she's moving fast, watching her play. She, her brain's probably just ahead of her mouth. She's left it behind. She'll figure it out. Probably the case. Um, but so we're doing a little speech therapy and we're learning about how to help Shay say words and we think she just doesn't care. Uh, so it's, you know, she, you know, when, when she, when she, she'll say things like Carson did it or uh, Carson is grumpy, you know, so we'll get those kind of three word sentences when there's a need and I forget, yeah, so it's, it's funny when you hear her. Um, so here's what they said. Here's what the, here's the speech therapist told my wife this past week. Now those of you in speech therapy, if this is, if this is not correct, I'm just an amateur. This through my wife or, you know, this person we're working with. She says, back in the day, you know, speech therapy was you sit across the counter in a chilly room and you do cards, right? Say this word and maybe you stop the kid and have them repeat a word that they said wrong and you do do this. They're recommending you should get on the ground with the kid face to face and play with them and talk. So they did this little... Uh, demonstration with Christy. You know, gal stands behind my wife and says, let's try to have a conversation. So she's back here, Christy's this way. It's kind of difficult, right? Gal stands to the side, let's have a conversation. I'm right here. And then she gets right in front of her. And they talk. Well, well of course. Well, you realize what we do with our children, right? You talk from the kitchen and they're in the family room or you're standing above them uh, so they're saying, get on the floor right in front of the child. And when the child says princess instead of princess, say, uh, use the word five times within a number of minutes the right way. Right? This is, makes a lot of sense. It's a loving way to do this, and I think it's going to work. Well, I hope. Well, God doesn't just sit down with us at a table with flashcards or talk to us from the other room. He gets on the ground with us and talks with us. He knows us well. He knows us what we need. And that's what he does with us in Christ. And that's what he does through every sign. In the Gospel of John, many signs are recorded of Jesus and each one with a point. So what's the point here? Was Jesus wanting them merely to have a successful breakfast? A successful business, sorry? Or, or they needed breakfast and so he came down? As we said, he's happy to feed them, desires to. 
But why did Jesus do this sign and why is this sign recorded right here? Jesus fed his apostles and this unforgettable meal is a sign of an unstoppable mission. Jesus fed his apostles and this unforgettable meal is a sign of an unstoppable mission. So part two, an unstoppable mission. The apostles will feed Jesus' sheep. The apostles will feed Jesus' sheep. This mission is for the sake of Jesus' sheep. First thing to notice, verse 15, these are Jesus' sheep we're talking about. Jesus is committed to his sheep at a very personal level. He died to make them his, and he's not here at the campfire to catch up on old times or because he's lonely or because he's hungry. He's here because he has sheep. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Now, there's another layer to what's going on here with Peter. We'll explore that in a minute. But at a basic level in this conversation with Peter, Jesus is delegating to his apostles, Peter being a representative, the feeding, the care, and the oversight of his precious flock. He does not have actual sheep somewhere in a pen that now that he is resurrected and gone, uh, he can no longer care for, and he's delegating their management of uh, the care of animals to the sheep. They don't do that. I don't guess that you'd guess. Three important words here to look at. Feed. Feed, what does he mean by feeding? Word could be translated tend or shepherd, but feed is a good translation in light of the sign that he has just performed in feeding his disciples. The bread was there. Jesus fed his disciples. It's the point of the sign. When Jesus talks about eating and feeding, he's often talking about God's word. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's the bread of life. When Jesus speaks about what his followers really need, he speaks about his own word. Jesus calls his followers to hear his words, to believe his words, to abide in his words, and to keep his words, and to receive his word. His sheep hear his voice, and they come to him. Notice that the focus here is on God's sheep, not on the world at large. In Matthew, you have a great commission where everything that Jesus would say is like in a capsule. Uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to, to obey all I've commanded. Well, in the previous chapter, John has referenced Jesus' uh, command for them to offer forgiveness or to withhold it from those who would not repent. So you have that dynamic going on. This is a, con- this is a focus on the teaching them to obey all I've commanded part, the care of Jesus' sheep, his flock. Watch these two words, my lambs. These aren't just any lambs. They aren't just any sheep. They're Jesus' sheep. Jesus talked to us about sheep before. When we talk about sheep, we often talk about how dumb they are, and that's fair. There are other animals God and Jesus could have picked. Horses, turtles, and beavers have their distinct qualities, and sheep have theirs. We're helpless, we're often senseless, and we need a lot of attention and direction. But if you notice that Jesus never speaks condescendingly about sheep, but with great affection, for his sheep. Listen to these words in John 10. Verse 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Verse 10 and following, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. 
He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Verse 27, the sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Uh, He was saying, I'm the good shepherd. Y'all are thieves, right? So almost a lot of these nice things that Jesus says often are controversial. It's wonderful that we have here his words on his love and his care for his sheep. It's what makes him the Messiah. Jesus' sheep are why he came and when he speaks they hear his voice. Thieves steal and kill and destroy the sheep but Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. Hired hands don't care. Jesus knows his sheep by name. Wolves scatter the sheep. Jesus gathers his flock and is doing so even now. There's nothing more precious to Jesus on this earth to the good shepherd than his sheep. And in John 21, Jesus is telling Peter and the apostles, if you love me, feed my sheep. This is a great honor and a responsibility of incomparable importance. But that's not all that's going on here. Not quite. As we will see, Jesus isn't just telling Peter to feed his sheep. He's establishing him as a man qualified to do so. This is a mission to feed Jesus' sheep. And it's a mission born in love. It's a mission born in love. That is Christ's love for us, love for Peter and his apostles, and the apostles' love for him. The apostles' love for him. Did you notice an oddity in how Jesus asked his question of Peter? Do you love me more than these? As in, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Why would, Peter ask, why would Peter be asked that question? And then Jesus continues in verse 16. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Son of John, by the way, being the name that he previously used before Jesus called him a rock. Something humbling about this, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Ever watch a movie and think, there are three minutes left. I have no idea how they're going to pull this off. All these unresolved themes and this thing to deal with. I have no idea. I will actually stop the movie and tell my wife to tell me how they're going to fix this. How do you think they're going to do this? I don't think they can do it. And I want to tease out, you know, it's, it must be the most, it is the most annoying thing you can do to your spouse. So um, I'll stop it again at two minutes left. I, I, two minutes. Um, you know, what they do it. This is, similar to, this is similar to that. You have the resurrection, tons of resolution to the story right there, Right? You have this nice breakfast and they're with Jesus and it's a little strange. And then this really awkward, really tense actually conversation between Jesus and Peter. 
and 10 verses left. Minute and a half left in the, the gospel, if that. And here we are. So why did Jesus ask him three times? He does not have a memory problem or a hearing problem. He has a glorified body. And he's not doing semantic tricks by swapping out words like lamb or sheep or different words for love, I don't think. You'll hear this preached with an emphasis on the different words from time to time. The problem is, is that this conversation probably actually happened in Aramaic. And John, throughout his entire gospel, is always swapping out synonyms, words for other words, just for variety in his writing. So I don't think that we can draw too much from that. So why is Jesus asking Peter this question in three times? And why is Peter grieved? And what does all this have to do with Christ's love for Peter and and Peter's love for Christ? To understand what's happening here, we have to understand what's going on in the mind of Peter and in his heart as these words land on him. Turn with me to John 13. John 13, start in verse 31. This is a flashback to the upper room. Judas has just left to betray Christ. Judas has just left to betray Christ. 1331. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus answered, will you lay your your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Why did Jesus ask him three times? That's why. Why did Jesus say, do you love me more than these? Because of Peter's famous boast that he would lay his life down for Jesus. He would be an exception to the rule that the group should stay back. Turn over to chapter 18, verse 15. As sure as Jesus promised, it happened. And by the way, this is a marvelous intersection of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Peter, perfectly responsible, perfectly acting within his own personality, character, and will. Jesus promising it perfectly to the crow of a rooster after three times. John 18, 15 and following Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did the other disciple. Since that disciple was not known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl was at the door, who was at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now a few verses later in verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. 
So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, quote, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, I got to make him nervous, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it again, and at once a rooster crowed. Matthew says that he left and wept bitterly. And now in John 21, back to John 21, around a familiar charcoal fire, being warmed by the fire on a chilly morning, with all of Peter's friends surrounding him, Jesus brings this up. He asks him a first time, and we can imagine that Jesus looked him in the eyes, both when they were in the court, and now at the campfire. They meet eyes, and we can imagine what goes through Peter's mind. Truly, the sound of the rooster has been haunting him. Do you love me? A second time, and his heart is racing. He's sick to his stomach, even afraid. He asks a third time, and now Peter could fall to the ground in grief. By asking a third time, Jesus is in effect saying, Peter, you and I both know what happened. Do you love me? As Kent Hughes put it, this was a mercifully brutal confrontation. Jesus' words were chosen to sting and they were calculated to hurt. Jesus was not going to let this go. But neither would Jesus let Peter go. This is a restorative confrontation. He's bringing the public sin out into the light and they're dealing with it. Peter answers in the affirmative again. But notice how Peter is answering, by the way, no self-righteousness here, only boasting, no boasting in himself, only an appeal to Christ's perfect knowledge. You know. He hasn't been mulling things, excuses that he would say. He hasn't been adding up the wonderful things that he has done in his mind so that when Jesus mentioned this, he was ready with his account. He simply says, Lord, you know. And of course, Peter flung himself off the boat to meet Jesus when he'd seen him, which is an evidence that it's true. There's no question about Peter's love for Jesus or Christ's deployment of Peter for feeding the sheep now. What a relief to hear the words after hearing the question a third time for Jesus to say, feed my sheep. He doesn't dismiss him. He reinstates him to service. And so the elephant in the room is gone between Jesus and Peter, and it's gone between Peter and the apostles. Jesus is saying, you're still the leader. See, Peter was a leader among the disciples. It was Peter who replied correctly to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am with? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. To which Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed to you this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this doesn't mean anything like what the Catholic Church has found in a verse like this. Papal succession. Jesus, Peter's authority over other apostles. There's nothing like that in the New Testament. Peter was a leader among the apostles, but that's what he was. Peter even writes in his letter, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. He was perceived and perceived of himself as a fellow elder among others. So Peter doesn't assume any kind of authority, special authority for himself, but he's reinstated into a position of leadership and apostleship. 
and conscience clear service. Peter had a bold and remarkable ministry in the years that followed and Christians should want to know the story of Peter who preached so boldly and died so valiantly. In his last encounter, one of his last encounters with Jesus, Peter is restored. Was Peter willing to serve a crucified Jesus a day before? The answer is no. The answer is he wasn't. Was he now? Yes. Peter is humbled for service and he has been shown grace for service by Jesus so that he can say in 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He has learned that Jesus' purposes include his Lord's suffering. And he will learn in the next breath of Jesus that Jesus' purposes for him will include suffering as well. This mission is unstoppable because it's for the sake of Christ's sheep. It is born in this kind of love that restores Peter. And it's unstoppable because it's more compelling than life itself. After telling Peter for a third time, feed my sheep, he basically says, you're going to die. Look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but then when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. John inserts an interpretive commentary here. Verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And then, verse 19, after saying this, he said to them, to him, follow me, follow me. Is this a call to lifelong discipleship that will end with Peter being dressed by someone else, dying in old age? No. Peter is saying, Jesus is saying, Peter, feed my sheep and be ready for crucifixion in the process. Crucifixion is what would have been on Peter's mind when he heard, stretch out your hands, a typical way of referring to crucifixion. It's what the original hearers of John, John's gospel would have heard, almost certainly reading this, as it was published almost certainly after Peter's death, as tradition tells us, he was crucified upside down. And it's what we would hear if we were reading John's letter closely. Remember John 13, 36 and following, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Note the word follow, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Peter's love was not as good as his word in this scene. He would not follow Jesus then, and Jesus would not let him. But that was John 13, and this is John 21. And here around the campfire, Jesus restores Peter showing him incomparable love and says to him, follow me. And so Peter will carry his own cross in time. It won't be easy. It will carry him where he does not want to go. But serving his Lord will be his pleasure. You can't follow me now, but you'll follow me afterward. I'll lay my life down for you. Here Jesus says, feed my sheep you will die by crucifixion, follow me. In his own words in 1 Peter 2, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to you this 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. See, Peter knows how he's going to die, right? If you get told how you're going to die, that'll transform the way you look at your circumstances and the advice you give people on hard times. How did Christ suffer? He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, remember where Peter is, by the way, when this is happening in Jesus' life. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He suffered, even as Peter denies him. He did not threaten him, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so Peter can say in 1 Peter 4, Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, this mission is unstoppable because it's for the sake of Jesus' sheep whom Jesus loves. It's born in love, the kind of love that shows this kind of grace to a man like Peter. And it's more compelling than life. Jesus will tell Peter he'll die doing this, and Peter will. And this mission is also under Christ's personal charge. It's under his personal charge, verse 20 through 24. In verse 20, we find Jesus and Peter talking as they walk along the beach for a little post-campfire Q&A. You know, when Jesus says, follow me, some say, he's probably saying, let's take a walk. I actually think he has John 13 in his mind. But they do take a walk. And here's what we read. Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who was also, had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, It is of my will, if it is of my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers and that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Well, in this scene, we find out the identity of the writer of the book and the identity of this one called throughout the book a beloved disciple or the other disciple. You could read this and think, this is so annoying. Tell me the guy's name. I mean, he's showing up all over the place. He's prominent enough to get a name. Well, it's the author. It's the author. It's the author. And apparently, he was known as the one, the disciple Jesus loved. You can't just put that in there and not destroy your credibility in writing the whole book. This is a given. This is a given. You know, at the the table, he's leaning against Jesus at the Last Supper. Peter says to John, hey, ask him which one's going to betray him. And then John asks. John is especially close to Jesus. If Peter will die by crucifixion, what about John? What about John? It's difficult to know if this is concern. Could be concern. What about John? How will he die? Or if it's competition, how's he going to die? <laughs> um, I, I, I get crucifixion. Um, he's closer to you. Um, or if it's just, if it's maybe more subtle than that, comparison. Does he have any business thinking about that? Jesus is talking to him about himself. Whatever his motive in asking, Jesus wouldn't have it. He puts the kibosh on it right there. Verse 22, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, I'm in charge of the mission. You do your job. What I have for John is none of your business. And most of us don't personally struggle with comparing our future deaths. You're like, how's he going to die? How's he going to die? I want to die like that. Um, 
We struggle with comparing our lives, the life and the lot that God has given us to live as his disciples. But Jesus is in charge. And what is it to you if you suffer physical ailment while your sister in Christ is clipping along without any health problems at all? If Jesus is in charge, what is it to you if you suffer an acute trial with a child while someone else's children flourish? What is it to you if you aren't appointed to a particular office or asked to serve in a particular way at your church? Where is our reason for boasting? One person knows the Bible better because they grew up in a Christian home and they were instructed from a very young age. And the next comes to know the Lord at 50, 30 years of drug use maybe. We're put together different. God has saved us at different times. He's given us different lots. He's given us different spiritual gifts according to his wisdom. This room is full of different people for different deployments according to Christ who is the head of his church. Remember in Bible college, an Old Testament survey, C in every, in every exam, C. My buddy down there is sleeping. A, straight A's. Uh, I was learning the Bible. He, you know, he knew it all. So I remember struggling with comparison there. And this is not an uncommon common problem for us. We're always looking at our life and asking, what is my life like and what is their life like and how would I like my life to be in comparison? The right question is, how is it that God has chosen to employ me in his service at all? And what has he given me to do right now? Follow me. What is it to you? Well, John put this here to help shepherd real people in real trenches of first century church. No doubt he had issues that had come up in his mind as he included this important story of a conversation between Peter of all people and his Lord Jesus in Jesus' response. So let's not compare. Let's learn from examples, but not compare. Peter was still a sinner, even right in this moment. Still a sinner. Peter lived a shorter life and died a martyr's death. John lived a longer life, and guess what? He wrote this letter. John reveals to us what he was appointed to do, and he wrote the book of Revelation, and three of his letters were inscripturated as well. There's no place for pride or self-pity in this story. What is it to you? And so Jesus' mission is unstoppable because it's for the sake of his sheep, which are precious to him. It's born in the kind of love that God shows, Jesus does to Peter. It's more compelling than life itself, and it's under Christ's personal charge. He's committed to it. And the mission is Jesus' top priority. Verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is euphemistic, but Jesus did many, 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 many amazing things that we have no idea about. And maybe one day we'll find out about them all. Some were picked for this book. This story in chapter 30, 21 was picked for a particular reason. And it really doesn't get any better than this scene we've just witnessed and these words we've heard between Jesus and Peter. This story made the cut. This is what we need to see and to hear at the end of this book after witnessing Jesus' resurrection. That Christ's work continues and that it continues in us. He is delegating the authority of the care of his flock to his apostles. Who then, as we find in their writing, have delegated it to the leaders of the church, the elders of a church. Jesus' care for you extends all the way to this moment. And he prepared for it in Jesus' visit here. 
so that Peter could say in 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well, a part- as, well as a partaker in the glory that it's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, remember Peter's unique temptation here, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Grace which Peter speaks about, having known it firsthand, and he hasn't forgotten. The apostles gave us the New Testament, and we are now feeding on their words. And Jesus is teaching his church. It says something about Jesus' priority for his church, that he would come back to say this, feed my sheep. He's as committed to his sheep being fed as he was to his sheep being his. He lays down his life for his sheep, and he calls his apostles to give up their lives for the sake of the sheep, you and me. Feeding is such a top priority for Jesus and for his apostles. The application here for us immediately is to feed, is to eat. I had a short conversation with a brother and new believer here about six months ago over there, discussing some things in his life, good conversation, and I said, have you ever read John, uh, 1 John 1? He said, oh, I haven't gotten there yet. You get it? New Christian, God has spoken to me in the Bible. I'm going to read it. I'm going to start on the left side and work to the right. I haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, On Friday, I was standing at the coffee bar working on my sermon, my standing desk out here. Uh, Hacking some things up, moving some parts around, and a buddy of mine walked by with his six-year-old boy. Actually, I said five-year-old boy in the first service, and the little boy came up to me and told me that he was actually six. So his six-year-old boy. And, uh, and my buddy says to his son, hey, Mr. Trent's preaching on Sunday. And like a smart aleck, I say, I'm going to say whatever I want. I'm focusing, it just comes out. Um, he says, son, can Mr. Trent say whatever he wants on Sunday? No. What can Mr. Trent say on Sunday? What the Bible says. What the Bible says. And he is absolutely right. Jesus visited his disciples a third time to feed them a meal and give them a mission. Feed my sheep. Christ is building his church even now and he is feeding his sheep still. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your unfading word your eternal word your good word your inspired word we thank you for sending Jesus and that he came on this day on this shore to meet his apostles to give them this commission to feed his sheep and we recognize that as an expression of his love for us and we thank you 
for sending your spirit to empower them to preach boldly the gospel so that it would reach us and that we would hear your voice and come to you. You've called us by name. Pray that we would be faithful to feed as though feeding is the priority that it really is in your plan for us. Every one of us in anything that we do here, feeding, eating, or supporting the work of the word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.